Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of different backgrounds. As I'm sure you can agree, it can sometimes be difficult to know what to specialise in and in particular it can be difficult to know what certain careers are actually like in practice. With our guests we've drilled down into why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. Today we're joined by Dr Emma Torbay, a consultant in obstetrics and gynaecology. In this episode we talk about what it takes to be an obst and gynae doctor and the pros and cons of going less than full time in medicine. I hope you enjoy. So hi, I'm Emma Torbay, I'm an obst and gynae consultant in the Great Western Hospital in Swindon um, and I would probably describe myself as a generalist within the specialty. Emma Tommy, thank you very much for joining us on the Geek Medics podcast um, and it's so nice to have you in person as well. We, we haven't been able to, to sort of be with many people, it's all been over Zoom so it's really nice to meet people and the reason I do this podcast is to sort of find out what career I want to do so it's, it's really it's really good to have you on and to, to, to meet you in person as well. Um, so you're an obst and gynae consultant, when did you first become interested in obst and gynae? Oh, um, I was really fortunate enough many years ago to have had a really inspirational third year attachment in Obst and Gynae. And up until then, it hadn't really been on my radar that much mm. um, with some really inspirational um, teachers. But I guess if I did honestly go back a little bit earlier than that, uh, I was a Southampton graduate and we did a systems based course. And I did really enjoy the endocrine and renal term mm. um, more than anything else. But I must admit, at that stage, I thought I was going to become an endocrinologist. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose there's crossovers with endocrinology and obst and gynae. Yes. They are quite different. They are quite different. <laughs> um, and I, my interest in obst and gynae, I, I enjoyed my third year attachment. I enjoyed my fifth year attachment. But I still thought I was going to be an endocrinologist. Mm. Uh, right up until my endocrinology house job back in those days of six month uh, blocks in mm. house officer years. And as much as I had uh, a great team, lovely consultant, um, it was mammoth medical ward rounds of mainly diabetic patients mm. that made me realise that wasn't quite where my passion lay. And I'm very grateful to a surgical registrar in my surgical house job um, who, in a coffee um during a cup between a couple of cases was asking me about what I was going to do next quite early on in my surgical house job and I opened up and said well I thought I was going to do endocrinology but I have absolutely um no idea now because I don't want to be a medic um and he took a really deep breath as all good surgeons do looked at me and said I can't believe I'm saying this out loud my surgical colleagues would kill me but I think you should consider Robson Guiney <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> the rivalry between surgery and obst and gynae mm. existed even way back then. Um, but it was a bit of a penny drop moment. Mm. Um, so like all good um, careers start over a cup of coffee and, um, exactly. and a chat. Exactly. So what is it that, I mean, at the time, what, what was it that obst and gynae, gynae provided you? You know, not endocrinology, <laughs> not quite surgery, kind of a mix. The bit and the bit. So... Um, as I said, it was literally a penny drop moment because not only did I then go, oh, yes, I 
do like hormones and ob- that they exist in obs and gynae. But also I went, yes, I really did enjoy obs and gynae. And it was that realization that what I enjoyed or what I got my rewards from was relatively acute, fast moving specialties. Mm. I like the fact that at the end of a day's work, I can see the fruits of my labors. Literally in mm. my specialty, there's a baby in a cotton, mm. it's screaming. Um, but it, but I did realize that was what I liked about surgery, even though I didn't like being long operations. It mm. was that sort of instantaneous reward. So that was a helpful realization. And then also the realization that obsingyne is so broad. So mm. there's still medicine within obsingyne, and you can be very medically based. You can become a maternal medicine specialist. Yeah. You can do medicine purely of pregnancy mm. right the way through to the other side which is big surgical operations on the gynae cancer mm. side but mm. we also are one of the few specialties where we can do our own imaging so we do scan and we scan both in obstetrics and some people scan within gynecology as well there's a real opportunity for doing a lot of public health stuff with mm-hmm. the cervical screening program there's the opportunity to do a lot of interventional stuff in either day surgery or clinic. And overall, it's a happy specialty. Um, It is a relatively good specialty for boxes of chocolates and thank you cards. People, (laughs) when they have babies, tend to be very grateful and that's always a really nice Mm. part of the job. But equally, you can walk alongside some patients going through some really tricky times either Mm. in the infertility service or in early pregnancy really sadly when someone's miscarrying or um on the gynae cancer side so it's all there because i guess all of medicine can happen during pregnancy Mm. Mm. um but it has some of the fun bits of lots of other specialties Mm. working week is very varied um, I suppose if, if people aren't already um, sold on Obs and Gynae, they will be now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've sold it. <laughs> um, so you mentioned you, you went to Southampton um, as an undergraduate. Yes. Went to Southampton. Um, did you enjoy it? Oh, best years of my life. Best years of my life. Um, yeah, it, it, it was home for a long time. Hmm. Um, met my husband there. Uh, he's also a doctor. And um, it was only at consultant jobs did we finally leave the area. So... I'm from Southampton, so um, that's that. I, I, Southampton's a great city, so I I agree with you. And there's a lot more to it than just a great big IKEA. <laughs> True. True. Um, and then after, so you trained in Southampton as well as as you know all the way through your training, um, and then sort of moved. Yeah, to so the, I was a Wessex West. trainee, so that patch in those days did include the Channel Islands, though I was never lucky enough to go there. Um, mm. And then yes, from Dorchester across to Portsmouth and up to Basingstoke. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you've sort of alluded to, to some of it already, but what what was training like? It's sort of run through. Was it run through then? or? Yeah, so we had um, two preclinical years, but we were really fortunate back in those days to actually have quite a lot of clinical attachments through those years. So mm. we were um, doing quite a bit of general practice and, and bits of times on the wards even in those days. But it was a systems-based um, yeah. approach to the curriculum. And then uh, we did... A third year which was purely clinical we did a fourth year in those days which was mainly a sort of a research mm. type year with some specialties and then a fifth year that was purely clinical 
And then you did your foundation years in Wessex, in the Wessex Deanery. Yes. And then did you go straight into Obs and Garney training at that point? Yes. Yeah, so um, back in those days when it wasn't run through training, mm. uh, it was applying for separate SHO jobs. So um, following the helpful conversation in that coffee room with Surgical Reg, I then frantically went off to see what Ops and Gynae jobs were available in Wessex. Mm. Uh, fortunate enough to have my first one in Poole, um, but that's I was also lucky enough that that first six months got extended to a year, and by then I think I'd pretty much decided that that was what was going to be right for me. Yeah. Um, and then we did SHO jobs moving between the different hospitals. Um, so I did a second year of SHO Ops and Gynae split between Basingstoke and Portsmouth um, and then in those days your run through training started as a registrar okay. um, so it was what we would refer to as applying for your training number mm. um, as part of Obsengaini training back then you also at some point before uh, finishing your training they encouraged you to take a year out doing something that has subsequently gone from Obsengaini, but it was that need at the time uh, that led me to go off to apply for another SHO job in a different specialty to try and complete my year. And in those days you could do it in anything. Um, I actually did it in intensive care. So I went and did intensive care for six months. Mm. I was uh, thinking of going on to do six months in sexual reproductive health that it now is or in mm. gum as it was in those days yeah. um but at that stage the adverts for registrar numbers came out and they did away with the obligatory year doing something else so stepped onto registrar training uh and we've i suppose we've we've talked about the best parts of the job um but you know there as with any career as with any speciality there are sort of downsides to it i think the one in my mind would be, you know, the hours in mm. obstetrics, particularly. Mm. I mean, how, what are the hardest bits of the job? But it, would it be the, the time spent? You know, would it be the hours or? The hours undoubtedly do have a degree of unsociability around them. Um, babies have not yet worked out that we would all like a nine to five job. So weekends and evenings, uh, the labour ward runs 24 seven. Um, but that is a double-edged sword. Of course, it's not great. The amount of nights do take their toll. Um, but if you like Obs and Gynae, then then you are still doing the thing that you really like. And I think those of us that are still on the labour ward as consultants, um, there's still something extremely rewarding about being present either at the birth of a baby or in a clinical emergency that you're actually able to solve at two in the morning mm. that gives you the reward that keeps bringing you back. Um, so if you're not a nighttime worker, you don't get your kicks out of catastrophic medical emergencies, then <clears throat> then you're right. <clears throat> Obzingaini might not be the specialty for you. Um, I sort of lump us in the same broad band as some anaesthetists, trauma surgeons, um, yeah. th that group, ED <clears throat> colleagues. Um, yeah. You have to like it to want to do it because yeah. it is very yeah. draining. Um, I think all negatives in obsangani are double-edged. So I, there is absolutely no doubt that sadly when things go wrong, especially in obstetrics with very sadly couples losing babies um 
that is unbelievably hard. I think every doctor goes into the specialty to use the awful phrase of fix situations or Mm. fix people. And when you can't do that, um, and it's catastrophic for families, if the day you stop caring should be the day you walk away. So Mm. it, it does, again, affect people. But there is something very privileged about being able to care for people in those moments. Mm. Mm. Um, again, that uh, for those of us in the specialty would probably find very rewarding. Mm. So I think those would be the two main things that can be hard. It It is a broad specialty, so there's an awful lot to get done within training. Mm. Uh, an awful lot of skills to obtain. Uh, as with all specialties, there are hard exams to get, and they are hard. Mm. Um, but I think those would be the two main ones that that jump to mind. Mm. Mm. What what type of person do you think you need to be? I mean, we sort of talked about it. Maybe someone who really likes obs and gyne, to, you know, to get through some of the, the harder aspects. But you know, that's that's broadly true of any speciality. Yeah. You know, as you say, particularly links with anaesthetics and you know the ones you have to be there during the night. But what sort of person do you think sort of lends themselves to to being a good sort of obs and gyne doctor? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Because obs and gyne is so broad, we are a broad church, and I do think that. There, there is room for people of all different personalities and strengths and weaknesses within mm. the specialty. Um, I think, therefore, the skills that stand out for Obsengaini may not actually be that different to many other specialties. You need great communication skills. You need great team working skills, especially in those acute scenarios. Mm. Um, but those aren't necessarily specific to Obsengaini. I think you need to be resilient, but I think medicine broadly requires you to be resilient. Mm, mm, mm. So there aren't many that sort of jump out at me. It is a surgical specialty. You do need to be dexterous to an extent. Um, So I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. It's a Mm. very, very hands-on specialty, Mm, literally. mm. So if getting your hands dirty, albeit still wearing a pair of medical gloves, is not your thing, then obs and gyne is not right for you. Mm. Okay, so someone someone who enjoys, you know, time on the ward and getting stuck in and dexterous, but also has a bit of, you know, medical endocrinology mind and a broad church. Yeah, definitely. A broad church of people. Um, <laughs> I wondered if you if you had any sort of cases that sort of stuck with you through your training and, and things or times as a consultant that, that perhaps make you want to do obs and gyne or just remind you of how sort of good the job is or most doctors have got patients that always spring to mind when you talk to them um i think my very very first set of triplets that i delivered will always just stick with me it was a lady who i had had the pleasure of being involved with from from an antenatal care Mm. point of view um so she will stick to mind uh there is a baby emma out there i know of uh that has been named after me which is a real honor i feel ever so slightly sorry for her when they tell the story (laughs) of why she's called emma um but that of course is a, a really really special thing so uh those two things on the obstetric side um from the point of view of the gynaecology side, actually, 
there there was a patient um, very early on that really got under my skin and she was a lady at the time who was exactly the same age I was who very very sadly had been diagnosed with cervical cancer mm -hmm. and, and not a particularly early stage of cervical cancer um, and and I think that was a moment in my training um, that got me to look again at the, the smaller aspect within obstetrics of colposcopy um, and it was as a result of her that I sort of went around for a little while trying to encourage all my friends to go for their cervical screening mm -hmm. tests um, but actually subsequently I then went on and did my colposcopy training as a registrar um, and then when I joined Swindon as a consultant uh, carry that on and I now actually lead the colposcopy service in mm. Swindon mm. Um, and so it is funny how just one patient can, mm. can get under your skin and, and actually end up defining a trajectory yeah. of your career so she really will always stand out um, as somebody who springs to mind of as a reason why you sometimes get up in the morning and go to work yeah um, yeah and yeah, as I said, as a result of her very sad case, um, I now see an awful lot of ladies mm. and uh, have um, the opportunity to Early treat, on make a difference. Early on make a difference. Mm. So mm. yes, the, the, those those couple of things are ones that sort of jump to mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose that leads us on to, obviously, as we're talking about two specialities really. Obstetrics and gynaecology. Uh, you... Oh, careful now, Josh. The college doesn't like you to think that you might split them. <laughs> right, I'll take it. We'll cut it out. Um, but you work in. A, we mentioned, you know, we were talking before we start recording that you work in a GGH. You're very broad in in what you do. Yes. Um, Not everybody is. You're no. absolutely right. So within obs and gyne, there is the possibility to become. Um, much more biased one way or the other and to the level of becoming subspecialty trained mm. and then working within units where you would only do one or the other so yeah. there are urogynecologists and gyne oncologists and fertility specialists mm -hmm. who may you may see more commonly who just do gynecology and there are fetal maternal medicine specialists mm. who you may see who predominantly do more of the obstetrics yep. so yes if you did start in obsangaini and quickly work out that there was one side of the fence that attracted you more because the grass for you is definitely greener yep. then through more subspecialty exposure and training you can you can it is very possible to mm. to drop mm. the other um but training to cct does require years of general training in both yeah yeah and you do both i do both <laughs> yes um we've sort of uh talked about um your the career the training and things like that if if, if medical students and foundation doctors are are thinking about applying for obs and gynae what sort of things would you tell them to do to either improve their you know chances of getting in or or just to make sure that they want to do the speciality you know that you spend the rest of your life doing what sort of things would you recommend for them um if you haven't already had the chance to um i would really suggest popping along and having a chat with some of the consultants in obsangani in your unit 
And I think seeing if you could get yourself on one of the departmental skills and drills days, either as an observer or as a participant, they're sometimes called prompt, Mm. um, because that's mandatory training. It's usually done in a multidisciplinary team. It is predominantly around obstetrics, but it is the drills of some of the more practical and some of the more common obstetric emergencies. and of course, by the mere fact that it's skills and drills and simulation, it's as close as doing obs and gynae as you're ever going to get without doing obs and gynae. That's mm. the point. Mm. And I think spending one day doing that, um, working alongside anaesthetists, midwives, other obstetricians, uh, members of the surgical scrub team, uh, and paediatrics, of course, um, I think that is about as close as you can almost get without actually doing the job again. Mm. Um, and I, if I was talking to a medical student or uh, a foundation year doctor about a career, that, that that's one of the things that I would be suggesting quite early on mm. for a couple of reasons. One, it gives you that as close as exposure. But two, if you go into it with a mind of critically looking um, at those team workings, um, you would have something to talk about at interview from personal experience. You'd be able to say, I've attracted to this specialty because when I was part of a simulation team, I experienced this or I saw that or I did this or I did that. And I think that would be quite unique um, to, to our specialty. There's always the thing of, pop along, chat to your consultants, there might be a project or an audit or a patient information leaflet or something that needs updating or doing. I think that advice is quite um, translatable across lots of different specialties because Mm. what you're doing is you want to prove to the people who are shortlisting and interviewing that you're genuinely interested in the specialty and have something to say more than just, I like it. Um, So those would be my two things for um have a keep a close eye on the royal college of obsingaini website there are some prizes specifically for medical students that you obviously can't apply for once you hit foundation year doctors there's some essay prizes and things um and some of the other sub sorry subspecialty societies within obsingaini are the mm. same um there are some medical student opportunities so um if you really are that keen pop along talk to some of the obsingaini consultants who might be able to point you in those directions so it's about having a think about what you can uh, do to show your commitment to the specialty Mm. and we were talking before we were recording about um career breaks um did you have any career breaks (laughs) during your training uh yes some uh deliberately chosen and some slightly unexpectedly not um so uh i'm a mum of two kids so i have had two bits of time out um taken up with parental leave um for those reasons uh my slightly unexpected career break uh, i sadly suffered with ill health uh, for a couple of years um as I was diagnosed with leukaemia, uh, and it prevented me from working clinically. Uh, it actually overlapped uh, with my maternity leave. So in total, I was away from clinical medicine for three years. Mm. 
uh, two of those purely not working at all. And the, the third year of the three years um, where I was able to go back to work but not able to work clinically, I did a um, quality improvement fellowship with what was in those days the Strategic Health Authority. So that was, um, the NHS isn't quite set up like this anymore, but as um, sort of the overviewing managerial side of a region I think that's the best way of putting it. It's not quite yeah. like the CCGs are of today because the system's completely different, yeah. but it's that sort of thing. So I had the opportunity to do a quality improvement piece of work for a year, which I did part-time um, from a managerial point of view. So those that, that was my career break. Um, mm. it, it was quite a long time out. Uh I was really, really well supported by my deanery. And at the end of those three years, um, I was fortunate enough to do a return to practice for six months, really supported by my hospital in those uh, That was in Winchester. Uh, and the consultants there were absolutely fabulous in helping me get back from doing sort of two days a week of, of non-clinical, yeah. uh, right back up to being able to work part-time fully on the on-call rotor. Yeah. Um, Having three years out, it must have, I don't know, you know, you come back after holiday in a week and you, you feel like you've lost some. Yeah, so there was, um, yeah, so there was skills I needed to get up to speed with, knowledge I needed to get back up to speed mm. with, new knowledge that I didn't even yeah, have because yeah. the specialty had moved on in the three years that I'd been out. Um, so, it, and it did take, it did take almost the full six months to mm. of, of a bit of study, but also, um, having like a mentoring yeah. type um, program where I was able to, to, to hone the clinical skills and the knowledge mm. uh, and get back to work. Um, and and I will be forever grateful for both the guys at the deanery and the consultants at Winchester mm. um, to, to get me back. And mm. then, yes, I um, worked part-time then because I was a mum, I did our first kid. Um, and then... We had our second kid, um, and I took some more time out, um, and and again got back again after that. Mm. So, I think it determination. You definitely need determination and desire to get back, but it is possible to get back after career breaks. Um, it it three years sounds. If somebody had told me at the beginning of three years it would be three years, I probably would have thought I would never get back. Um, but some things don't change. I'll let you into a little secret. Babies still come out the same way. <laughs> that, you're simplifying a complex process at times, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so, I mean, obviously people, and this is this is career, it's very generic really yeah. to lots of different specialities, but I think, you know, going less than full-time is becoming more common because yeah. of burnout, because you know, men suddenly want to have time <laughs> with their children. Uh, you know, there's plenty of reasons to get people go less than full time. What would your sort of recommendations be for that, you know, um, from your own experiences, really, of going less than full time in training? Are there any barriers to that now? Um, you're right. You're absolutely right. More and more people are doing it. And I think the rules around part time training have definitely changed over mm. the years. Um, when I initially returned part-time it was obviously for health reasons as opposed to just childcare reasons um whereas now that 
grading of um how can I put it? it when I first applied there was literally a hierarchy of need for and, and if you were lucky enough to be towards the top of the list you got part-time training uh, and that isn't yeah. always the case now so it is mm. open to an awful lot more people yeah I think um like all things and it's a phrase I've used a lot it's a double-edged sword because of course by sheer definition you're going to train for longer so um from a from an obs and gyne consultant point of view um that is more years of being the registrar on the labor board yeah yes whereas i work in a hospital where we don't uh do full consultant resident on call uh so i am on call as opposed to always in the hospital though the future might change on that um but if you elongate your training you're going to have more years of physically Mm. being there Mm. uh have a good think about the reason why you're going part-time uh, for me, it was health, and then as health got better, it was because of kids. Uh, I do think being a mum or a parent is the uh, I always joke about it being my other full time job. So you might be training part time, but on those other days, you're still doing a full time job. Mm-hmm. So um, being organised is key, and. Uh, I think a Google calendar is very handy. I'm trying to remember where you're meant to be and who you're meant to be with and what roles and responsibilities you have when you're there. So I think um, from that point of view, part-time training enables you to spend more time with the family. A long, long time ago, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a drink in a pub as a medical student with a consultant rheumatologist. It was a very strange thing. I'm going to quickly tell you the story, but my... Strange turn of events. Yeah, strange turn of events. So my husband and I, or husband now, but he was my boyfriend then, were in a pub back in my hometown and we were wearing our medical society sweat tops. And a lovely couple came over and said... um, can we buy you a drink? Because my wife used to go to Southampton Medical School and she's now a consultant. She'd love to find out how everything, Mm. what Southampton's like. So we had the pleasure of talking to this lovely couple um, for a little while over a drink. Um, And so this lady was probably about 20 years or so ahead of me in medical training. And after a couple of drinks, and being slightly more brazen because of them, I turned around to her and said, I do have to ask, you told me you're a consultant, you've told me you've got kids, how did you do it? Mm. And she gave me a piece of advice that I've never forgotten, and I still give to other people. And she told me this, she said, if you decide to do just the career and don't have the kids, and I would put now the modern day, if you decide to train part time, uh, sorry, Mm. if you decide to train full time and for whatever reason don't have those other things in life you may always wonder what you're missing out on she said if you don't do the career and you do decide to have family or if I might put it a different way if you decide to stop medicine and do other things you might always wonder what you could have achieved and if you train part-time and have the kids but I extend that to do your other things you might always wonder if you're doing either of them to the best of your ability. So there's no winning. And I don't think there's any winning. And I must admit, I came away from that 
slightly depressed mm. because I was you hoping. Made me depressed. <laughs> I was really hoping she was going to give me the magic formula. Mm. But as time's gone on, she's absolutely right. And I think the best advice is which of those three options sits best with you. Mm. And then pick the option and don't look back and don't worry about the other options just make sure you pick the right one for you mm. and i i hope that's helpful and it's not just rob's and gynae it's across mm. other specialties mm. that is helpful i thought you were gonna give me the answer <laughs> the give everyone the medical answer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um sort of a, a a question obviously i think the career in Obs and Gynae has been defined by Adam Kay. Yes. In a good way? Well, I think all our bookshelves are slightly more um, filled with comedy than they had been mm. before his book. Yeah, yeah. They're um, very easy to read. Fantastic, you know. And I think um, as an obstetrician reading those books, and um, my husband is a doctor as well, and he's read those books... Um, I think we all have very, very, very similar stories. I just can't, um, I can't convey them in this brilliant way that he mm, does. Mm, mm. Um, I think seeing the humour in some of those moments is really key. Uh, and I'm glad he's been able to convey that. I think he also brilliantly conveyed some of the challenges that we face in Obsengani and some of the complexities and some of the real difficult situations and some yeah. of the heartbreak situations. Um, I would like to go as far as saying that maybe there, um, there might be people almost in every specialty who could find stories that reflect their specialty, who could but we're just not all good at comical writing <laughs> as yeah. Artemis. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, I mean, that's, we all have a laugh and whatever at work and that's what you get through. But um, He does talk brilliantly about the black humour of medicine mm, and I think, that, yeah, that's it. I think the black humour is a way of us coping. Um, mm. I think it's a sort of shared camaraderie. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I think it's that shared camaraderie and shared understanding and trying to see trying to see the humour in situations and trying mm. to remain upbeat mm. that is key to the resilience um, of... But I think he brilliantly conveys some of those complexities mm. as well. Mm. Mm. Um, I have to ask as well, and we can put this in anywhere in the podcast, doesn't matter. You mentioned your, your husband is a, is a paediatrician. Did you ever... Have you ever been in the same you delivering a baby whilst he sort of was doing the neonatal side of things have you yes we've had <laughs> I had to ask yes that we've brilliant. had that moment we had it very 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 early on in our careers um I found it absolutely terrifying because he's my biggest critic um and after that job we both specifically requested never to be in the same hospital and at the same time ever again though i do have to caveat that i we have some friends who are also an obsingonian pediatric couple mm. uh they had the opposite experience they found working together unbelievably supportive um, and would very, very happily work the same shifts because um, the obstetrician of the couple would say she almost would sigh a sigh of relief because she knew that the 
pe- the trusted the, the trust in the yeah, the person yeah. who was going to work side by side yeah um that might say a bit more about their relationship than it does about us <laughs> i was gonna let you say that not me um brilliant well um Dr. Torbay, thank you very much for, for joining us on the Geeky Medics podcast. I don't think I have any more questions. It was really interesting to talk to you about your career and how you've got where you are and, and Obs and Gyne. And um, yeah, I hope I hope it gives some ideas to what the career is like. And yeah, thank you very much. Thanks ever so much. sure you can tell from that interview I really enjoyed meeting Emma and exploring what it takes to become an Ops and Gynae consultant. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from us please consider subscribing to your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. As always thank you to the producers of the podcast Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter.